So please continue following all the instructions that have been given about foundations of Zazen. They don't change. And make your practice a smooth, even, even a ritual. So the Teisho, the Dharma talk, is not about any new practice. It's not about some new method. It's not about a better way. But in this case, it's more like a tour guide pointing out different aspects. So, you know, if you were to say, see that big cast iron spire on the horizon, you're still looking around, but you might notice something. So, please continue exactly the practice that we've been, Bancho and Kisei, have been talking about. Now, what if our view of practice was a little limited, though? Not the practice itself, not the method, but what if our understanding of the method, what if our approach was partial or was upside down? So if we think of a circle, the inso, the circle is whole, one circle. But as soon as we have a left side of the circle, we then have a right side of the circle. So back to this text. Mahakashapa, the eighth ancestor after the seven original Buddhas. Seven original Buddhas point to the endless, unarising nature of reality. Unarising nature of reality. Mahakashapa is Shakyamuni Buddha's heir. Throughout his lifetime, he was engaged without negligence in the 12 ascetic practices. Not to accept invitations from people, to practice begging daily, not to receive money as an alternative for food, to stay in the mountains, not in villages or towns, not to ask for or accept clothing, but to take clothing from the dead in cemeteries and die and sew the clothes for cloth for robes, to take shelter under a tree in a field, to have one meal a day, not to lie down day or night, but to practice walking meditation and sleep sitting up, to own three robes and nothing more, and not to lie down with a robe on, to live in cemeteries rather than mountains or houses, to sit zazen and seek the way while gazing at skeletons, to seek out a solitary place with no desire to lie down with or to be close to others, to eat fruit before the meal and not after, to sit in an open space and not desire to sleep under a tree or in a house, not to eat meat or cream, and not to rub the body with flax oil. It's kind of a crazy list. <laughs> you know? I mean, it is, you know. So some of those are just standard precepts Theravada monks take. And some of them are just strange. To live in cemeteries rather than monasteries. I mean, he's talking, you know, this is a monk. He's living in cemeteries rather than monasteries. Where should a monk live? And not to rub the body with flax oil. 
Almond oil is okay, but flax oil is bad. So I think what we have to think about with texts like this, a text, a medieval text, a text that was written 800 years ago, is he's not talking about, you know, never lay down day or night. Now there are people, there are practitioners who have never laid down. You know, if you look uh, online, I'm sure you probably can see there's a, a Hindu practitioner who vowed to never lower his arm. <clears throat> and, and you can see that for 20 or 30 years, he just kept his arm up and it froze in this position and it, you know, it can be done. And maybe there's some spiritual benefit in holding your arm up for 30 years. I don't know. It definitely is an act of incredible willpower. But I think that this text is, Dogen is a, a poet. He's filling, he's, he's playing as one of, I think I said earlier, he's a, a, a jazz man of the Dharma. And he just has these little riffs and he throws these riffs out and they're all part of a certain melody, a certain tune, a certain mosaic. And so let's look at this not from the vantage point of, okay, if we were <clears throat> doing real practice, we'd only look at skeletons all day. Look at that several ways. But what if the things that we regard in this life as requisites, as advantages, as privileges, are only half the picture. So, as far as houses, or places to live are concerned, you know, we have sort of a hierarchy in this country at least. You have people who have mansions, 16 rooms, 16 bedrooms, 18 baths. There's large, clean, well-lit, paid-for homes with landscaping and four or five bedrooms and small houses with two beds and a bath and simple houses with one bed and one bath and a kitchen and tiny houses with just two very simple floors and studio apartments and shared rooms and a temporary motel room for the night and tents, cardboard boxes. Now, in our culture, of course, we tend to think bigger, better, higher, faster has an advantage. And that what is smaller, lower, drippier has a lot of disadvantages. And we can all see the advantages of having our basic needs met, of course. But looking at the whole, the whole picture, the circle, and we look at the top half of the circle, which immediately creates the bottom half of the circle, which part of the circle can we practice mindfulness in? Which part of the circle is reality most evident in? Which part of the circle is 
can anyone, which of us can experience only one half of the circle? So thinking about just the requisites or thinking about houses, like that little hierarchy of modern mind in terms of housing, which of these houses, these ways of shelter, are more conducive to going to sleep? Which is more conducive to entertaining ourselves to death? Which is more conducive to isolation? Which is more conducive to feeling superior? To arrogance? Which of these structures is more likely to wall off the real world? Which of these structures is more likely for someone to live in a fantasy? Which of these structures I just mentioned are people more likely to appreciate small kindnesses? So this teaching of Dogen's about Mahakashapa, I don't think, is about you know, eating fruit before meals. But what if every situation had advantages and had an opportunity to practice, and sometimes the very things that we think of as disadvantages actually have advantages? What if each condition, each type of housing and shelter was equal in terms of mindfulness, equal in terms of capacity for love, equanimity, but what if the advantages and disadvantages of these types of shelters were played against one another? So we often tell ourselves things like, you know, I'm too tired, I'm exhausted, I'm discouraged, my body hurts, I'm inadequate, I'm depressed, I'm too busy, my family, my friends, my partner, my culture, my society is all unsupportive and even hostile. What if all of those were the exact conditions to soften the heart, to practice in? What if we actually got it backward? The text continues, the Tathagata, the thus come one, the, the isness of this moment, admired Mahakashapa's determination. At another time, Mahakashapa looked exhausted because of his ascetic practices, and the monks looked down on him. Then the Tathagata graciously called Mahakashapa up to him and offered him half his seat. Thus Mahakashapa sat on the, on the Tathagata's seat, on the Buddha's seat. Know that Mahakashapa was the most senior monk in the assembly of the Buddha. It's impossible to list all the practices in his lifetime. Mahakashapa, probably scrawny, tired, maybe even dirty, you know, living out in cemeteries, so he's homeless. Looking like a skeleton. And people began judging. 
laughing at him, pointing fun. That's not the right word. You know, making him the brunt of jokes. And the Buddha said, no, no, that's, you've got it backwards. You've got it backwards. This being, it doesn't matter how he looks, how she looks, how it looks. It doesn't matter what you call him. Call them. Come, sit in the high seat. Be a Buddha. So when we encounter all of the things that we encounter during Sushen, my legs hurt, my back hurt, my mind's hurt, my throat hurts, my, you know, my whatever, right there, right there. Awareness is not limited to any condition. Mindfulness is not limited to any condition. Curiosity is not limited to any condition. Now, the people who are really interested in health are people who are sick. The people who are really interested in getting out of pain are the people who are in pain all the time. Who are the people who are really interested in loving kindness? Who are the people who are really interested in wisdom? Now, at the extremes of great ease, great bliss, great comfort, the heavenly realms, and the hellish realms, you know, terrible, terrible agony, both ends of the spectrum can become dull and dense and blind in different ways. Which end of the spectrum, though, people who are hurting and people who are quite complacent, which end of the spectrum is really more interested in kindness and love and, and generosity? Which one can cultivate appreciation? Of course, both can, because mindfulness is not limited. Love is not limited. But when we are in a, a distressed situation, we are more awake and alert. We can be. The greatest advantage, the greatest privilege, is being alive. When we have that advantage, that privilege of being alive, then there's all kinds of things that are possible. And what's so everything we meet has the possibility of awakening. And not just the advantageous things that we see. Now, what's advantageous for human beings is not advantageous for elephants or tigers or jungles or oceans. So sometimes what's advantageous, what appears advantageous, actually has many, many other sides to it because it's one total circle. And if you have advantages, you have disadvantages. If you have benefits, then you have detriments. They come together. 
If human beings thrive and populate the earth and have an eight billion people on the earth, then that has natural consequences on all kinds of other things. Everything is connected. So in terms of practice, which is what this is about, about practice, in terms of practice, everything we experience has the potential for liberation. If, if, that's what we want. If we're willing to inquire into it. Now, our minds are made for duality, and that's how we discriminate, you know, this from that, up from down. The circle doesn't need to make a discrimination. The whole of the universe doesn't need to make a discrimination, but the bits of the universe immediately make discriminations. And, of course, we have things that we decide are advantageous. This is overkill, but let me take it another step here. So as soon as we decide more coconuts are better, then there are those who are worse off. As soon as we create up, immediately, down is created. In, out, right, wrong, good, bad, privileged, unprivileged, better, worse. From the perspective of the whole, in a way, there's no difference between up and down. It's just part of the whole. It's a relative state. It's a a temporary view. As soon as we have a hundred coconuts, there are great opportunities. We can trade them, we can eat them, we can use them as fuel, we can use them as weapons. But there are also disadvantages to having hundreds of coconuts. You can't carry them around. You're stuck in one place. You become a target of thieves and a target of envy. You become arrogant. You can become arrogant and fearful. And you can think that the meaning of life is dependent upon coconuts. And not having coconuts has advantages. You're lighter, you're more mobile, you're not burdened with all this stuff, you're more flexible, you might realize the meaning of life may extend to bananas and grubs, or you may have more freedom. So, as we are responding to situations as best we can, with as skillfulness as we can, it is also very important that we're always investigating and looking into every situation, every place, to see what's at its root, what's at its root, because it has the same root. Continuous practice is not about a state. It's not about, okay, I finally made the state of machine-like concentration. I finally made the state where I can sit in full lotus for two hours with ease. It's about finding love, wisdom, kindness, connection, wherever we find ourselves, and in whatever state we find ourselves. Continuous practice 
is about a flexible mind that just keeps showing up and showing up. Knowing that even if we show up as our worst, our most confused, our hopelessness, our sleepy grogginess, even if we show up at our worst, it has advantages and disadvantages. Suppose we have the aspiration to to be humble and we show up to give a talk and we're a total wreck. Everybody laughs at us. It's a great teaching in humility. Failure is a great teaching for humility. Rumi has a a poem which I couldn't find about being robbed. He says, "When, when robbers come and they they beat me and they take everything, I realize one thing. I realize I don't want what they want. There's a Zen phrase, my house burned down, now I can better see the moon. Continuous practice is about showing up with whatever we got, showing up with whatever, wherever we are, showing up and doing the best we can showing up to do the best we can though means we have to be clear about our intentions for our life. And most people, when they're talking and they're spiritual practitioners, not everybody, but most people who are spiritual practitioners talk about the, the inner heart values of love and kindness and respect and inclusivity and appreciation and those things. There are people who also have wisdom, seeing the whole, seeing the foundation of all things, seeing the root of all existence, knowing the mind of God, knowing, resting in. So if we have some sense of our own intention, aspiration, and we just show up. We keep showing up, trying to figure out, in this situation, how do I find loving kindness? In this situation, how do I find wisdom? In this situation, how do I let go of my false beliefs? How do I let go of my arrogance? How do I let go of my whatever? So that I can see what is true. Now suppose in our hearts we said to the universe, Universe, I want to be really wise. I want to be totally loving. I want to be embodying love. I want to really see for myself the inclusive nature of reality. Universe, this is my heart's desire. This is my vow for my life. This is... And the universe sort of says, well, okay, that's what you want. Let's try you out. So to learn to love lovable people is very easy, right? So the universe says, well, let's try you out with some crabby, irritable people. Can you expand your love to them? How about arguing children? Can you expand your love to them? How about restless, unhappy people? Can you expand your love to them? Can you be loving in the presence of 
dissatisfaction and disharmony and okay you've expanded that far well how about can you expand yourself to poisonous people hateful people here try this out see how if you can expand your capacity for love to the whole universe to the whole of people to all of humanity to the earth and the sky and everything in it we don't grow if this is the the vow we don't grow it's easy to love lovable people it's easy to be wise in nice territory that we understand, that we've got control in. It's easy to see the inclusive nature of things. We're in a, a beautiful, harmonious place and everybody is a wonderful practitioner and they're all doing their best. But if you want to practice wisdom, well, how much you get a project going that's going to benefit lots of people? As soon as you decide to do something, of course, every obstacle to that project comes alive. How about when too many things are coming at you at once and you're just completely overwhelmed? Can you find wisdom there? How about when you're depressed? How about when you're depressed, overwhelmed, in a war zone with starving people? Can you find wisdom there? You want, you want wisdom? This world is just a teaching ground for your own heart. So as spiritual practitioners, it's very important to the continuous practice of cultivating, cultivating the character, the insight, the wisdom, the heart. That's the practice. It's the cultivation. In Chinese Buddhism, they call us cultivators, not practitioners. Cultivators. We're growing. How do you grow something on rocky, hard soil? Well, it takes more patience. It takes a lot of extra dirt. And, of course, you know, when we're, when I'm making, I'm talking to people, <clears throat> talking to myself and to all of us who are spiritual practitioners who have these intentions in our hearts. There are lots of modern privileged people who'd much rather be comfortable than loving and wise. And there are lots of disadvantaged people who'd much rather be angry and righteous than wise and loving. But as cultivators, we practice inquiry. We practice kindness. We practice showing up. We practice wisdom. We practice skill to turn ourselves into the best that we can be and offering that to the world. This is the challenge of spiritual practice. And so I think this is what Dogen is talking about with Mahakashapa. He's just saying here, he's got all these crazy situations he can still practice. He can still be a Buddha. Heavenly realms, hellish realms, the challenge is the same. You know, from a, our 
certainly from my kind of modern vantage point, I often think people with clean clothes succeed better than people with dirty clothes. You know, we have these kind of deeply held assumptions. We have a, we've had a homeless person in our sangha, mentally ill, who suffers enormously. But he often, I would say to him, you are the most spiritual person, people that we have. Spiritual persons that we have. Because he's always concerned with justice, always concerned with others suffering, always trying to pick things up, always donating a quarter whenever he comes to the, the temple. And I doubt that if I were in his shoes, which have big holes in them, that I would fare as well as, in terms of practice as he does, that I would aspire to. Continuous practice. Continuous practice. We have the aspiration for continuous practice. We always have an advantage. From a worldly vantage point, there are advantages and disadvantages. And even some of those advantages are disadvantages. If you want to practice and learn humility, great power and great wealth is probably not the best route to go. Now, here's another aspect. Nobody's going to know how you practice or not. Nobody's going to know. You know, you may have your name, Mahakashapa. Somebody might know that name, but what does that mean? You know, how many Johns and Dicks and Toms and Janes and Joes and Jennifers are there in the world? Nobody's going to know. I have a relative from a hundred or so years ago who was in Appalachia, the minister, the old regular Baptist church. My grandmother used to call them old foot-washing Baptists. Because one of their practices was the practice of humility and washing feet. And in their reading a little bit of their kind of bulletins and newsletters, in those bulletins they always were talking about this person was such a loving person, this person was such a kind person, this person really radiated the goodness of... And I often think about all of those people in all those congregations, those little bitty churches all over the world, temples, hermitages, filled with unsophisticated or uneducated or whatever people. They may be filled with bodhisattvas, radiating loving kindness, exemplars of the highest order. But we'll never know. We'll never know. 
knowing and being known, you know, as one of the eight worldly winds, fame and infamy, being recognized and being seen and not being recognized and not being seen are kind of two, two sides of the same pole. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What matters is the character of our heart. What matters is the inspiration and aspiration of our heart. Nobody's going to know if we succeed or fail. In a way, not even us. Nobody's going to remember all the efforts that we made. There's a one, one koan in the Blue Cliff record, I think it is, where the teacher in that koan talks about having, having just you know, gone down and down and down into the <clears throat> bottom of the sea for the benefit of others. Something like that. Nobody cares. But we care about our life. We have the advantage of being alive. Our practice is the practice of giving life to life in every circumstance. The practice of being fully alive, whether we're up or down, in or out, The practice of connection and loving-kindness. And in this world of billions of people, nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to know. You know, even in our little tradition here, we have who is the name of Maizumi Roshi's grandfather in the Dharma. We'll all be forgotten. Dogen Zinji says, Continuous practice is not necessarily something people in the world love, but it should be the true place of return for everyone. Because of the continuous practice of all the Buddhas of past, present, and future, all the Buddhas of past, present, and future are actualized. The effects of such sustained practice is sometimes not hidden, Therefore, you aspire to practice. The effects is sometimes not apparent. Therefore, you may not see, hear, or know it. So, we are practicing, we are working, we are trying to do good in some way. People set up a foundation, try to help feed people, clothe people. One of the Early members of the White Plum set up the Oregon Food Bank. Nobody remembers who she is. Maybe in that little group that her name is still there. But the fact that as a practitioner, as a person with aspiration, as a person with heart, that we are trying to give life to life, sometimes it reveals itself. 
And sometimes nobody notices. Sometimes <clears throat> it reveals itself and people praise us and think, oh, you did a really good job. And sometimes just the very fact that we are endeavoring to make things a little better, a little brighter, a little clearer, is all we get. Now, so what can we offer to the world as practitioners? We can offer really one basic thing to people, and that is hope. hope that they can find, each person can find their heart's desire in their heart. Hope that by looking carefully, by inquiring, by practicing loving-kindness, there is a richness and, fulf- and fulfillment. Whether you are in Auschwitz or Brooklyn, that there is a meaning in the very beating of our heart. I keep thinking about um, Viktor Frankl, who said that even in Auschwitz, there were people who were happy, were content, because they had meaning in their heart. So we may be working actively to improve conditions. Great, hallelujah. But we have more stuff in this country than any place in history. And we're still not happy. But to try to practice ourselves the deep practice of inquiry and satisfaction that this particular moment and place, this particular moment and place, is the place of inquiry, is the place I can give life to life, is the place where loving-kindness can be found and manifested. And then to try to inspire other people to say, it's not hopeless. It's not about getting a better computer. You've already got the, the essence. You've already got a heart and a mind that is alive. And, of course, there are people with all kinds of, of difficulties, of course. Of course. The effect such sustained practice is sometimes not hidden, and therefore you aspire to practice. The effect is sometimes not apparent, therefore you may not see, hear, or know it. Understand that although it is not revealed, it is not hidden. As it is not divided by what is hidden, apparent, existent, or non-existent, you may not notice the causal conditions that led you to be engaged in the practice that actualizes you at this very moment of unknowing. It's a cool line. As it is not divided by what is hidden, apparent, existent, or non-existent, you may not notice the causal conditions which led you to be engaged in the practice that actualizes you at this 
very moment of unknowing. The reason you don't see it is that becoming conscious of it is not anything remarkable. Investigate in detail. So that because the causal conditions, the aspiration of this moment is no other than continual practice. Though continual practice is not limited by the causal condition. So please, the aspiration for loving kindness, for wisdom, the aspiration through fog and darkness and light, through morning and night, the aspiration through sitting, standing, walking, or lying down, the aspiration in eating fruit before meals or after meals. That's where practice. And that aspiration is manifested in the wholehearted willingness to be present. So nobody's defective. Nobody falls out of the universe. Nobody is missing anything essential. And to look at the world with that eye, you see a different world than a world that's full of brokenness. And they're not one or the other. But even in the midst of the difficulties of this world, there is still the continuous practice.